1: to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com.
0: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news...
1: Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance, a lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are
3: all on the same team. Know your role and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again.
0: Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity.
1: My name is Paul Barnett, and you are listening to The Great Coaches Podcast, where we explore leadership through the lens of high-performance sport by interviewing great coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us lead our teams better. Our great coach on this episode is Simon Jones. Simon is a cycling coach who started working with British Cycling in the mid-1990s. In 1998, he was appointed the British National Track Endurance Coach, and then in 2003, he was promoted to the head coach role of British Cycling. During this period, he coached Sir Bradley Wiggins and Mark Cavendish, and in 2004, 2005 and 2007, the team came top of the medal tally at the Track Cycling World Championships. In 2007, he then moved to the Western Australian Institute of Sport in coaching roles for racing sports. This then led him to a coaching and innovation role with Team Sky under Sir David Brailsford in 2014, and two victories in the Tour de France, one in 2015 and another in 2016. And from there to the top role at Australian Cycling as the Performance Director from 2017 to 2021. Simon puts his athletes at the very centre of his coaching approach. He believes that attention to detail to focus on, in his words, planning, not the plan, helps the cyclist unlock their potential and adjust accordingly in a complex world. He believes in the human ability to synthesise information, summarise, find patterns and adjust, and in this interview, you will hear him talk about his description of working with Sir David Brailsford at Team Sky and how they apply to focus on marginal gains to win the Tour de France. How on race day you have to be mindful of not having a negative impact as a coach, and so you need to stand back and give the athlete space. And his view that legacy is for your ego, and so he doesn't focus on it, but instead tries to just do his job and enjoy the role. This was an enjoyable interview with a coach who believes in empowerment, and I hope you enjoyed as much as Jim and I did. And just before we go to the interview, if you're a first-time listener, you can check out our library of interviews with other great coaches at our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. And while you're there, if you would like to help our podcast, which is fully independent and free from ads, you can follow the link to our Patreon page, where we offer exclusive content to our supporters. And now, please enjoy our interview with Simon Jones. You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Simon Jones, good afternoon and welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. Thank you for having me. Simon, where are you today and what's the weather like?
2: It's actually sunny. I'm in Perth in Australia. I'm in quarantine, so 14 days self quarantine because I've just recently been in Adelaide. Working in my office, which is a bit on the chilly side, but all good thankful for you giving us a little bit of your time
1: today to talk about your coaching experience because you've had a wonderful journey. And I'd like to start off actually by asking you about two great coaches that you worked alongside, Peter Keane and Sir David Brailsford. And these are just a few of the great coaches that you've had access to
2: over the years. But what is it you think the great coaches do differently? I think they don't give up and they live in the future. I think that's great challenge and support, I think, are the three main things you know, create the future, they challenge the status quo and then support people. And that can become in a combination of support's not always necessarily positive and it could be a probe and a prod and some honest conversations. But I think that's what they do. They create a future state for people want to go to. In preparing for this interview today, I was
1: reading a lot of articles and I, I keep hearing people talk about your mantra being, it's not the plan, it's the planning. So I'm wondering if you could talk about how you've used this particular mantra to help
2: improve your athletes. Yeah, I don't know. Well, that was quite funny when you mentioned that. Yeah, I do mention it yesterday again, because I think you've got to create a vision for the future, but we don't know what's going to happen. We live in this complex world, but without a destination to aim for. So just use it a bit like getting your car. You go in, we used to have maps, we've got GPS now, and the GPS kind of guides us there. And you've got to change direction, maybe based off of the traffic conditions or, you know, you want to stop along the way. And in a simple analogy, that's what coaching does. It's about understanding the destination. It's about kind of working out the route and the journey, the resources required. Maybe you've got to stop and take a picnic on your journey. You basically got to work out what you need to do to get your destination. So I'm a big one for planning. But it's not about the plan because I think people that stick to the plan then don't absorb new information and then iterate the plan. And because we live in this complex world and it's ever-changing, so those people that stick to the plan, I think, get in a comfort zone. Everybody think, oh, yeah, I've got a plan and we're on track and they're not able to be, like I said, absorb new information. So I think, I think you're constantly learning. So planning is, you never stop planning. People think they write a plan and that's it. No, your plan is always a live document that you adjust adjust with data information, athlete insights, uh, competitor information, and it's a, living, it's a living document. So that's really the background to that statement. Actually, I'd like to talk about the comfort zone because I, I've
1: heard you talk about it actually on other interviews when you've said you know humans are designed to be in their comfort zone. They don't like change, but to remain at the top, you always have to be evolving. In cycling, what is the role of the coach in bringing the athlete out of their comfort zone?
2: Well first thing I think everybody needs a coach, not just athletes, but coaches need coaches as well. So I think there's a coaching is about a culture and a way of a way of doing things. And I think central to that is about getting feedback because we do miss things, don't we? We you know we have our perspectives. So I think coaching simplistically is about a partnership and it's about co-creating plans together and, and offering perspectives it could be many things i mean coaches come in all sorts of shapes and sizes so my what i've learned over the time is that you've got to i believe athletes have got so many of the answers even young like young athletes and because they're experiencing what they're doing you've got to learn to tap into that so i think the role of the coach is to really really understand and get feedback from training sessions at one level the other one is like i said you've got to dangle the carrot in the future and you've got to get people to kind of do things which they might not really believe they can do And I think by doing things that you've not done before, it's uncomfortable from really a mental thing. Yes, the training's hard, that's always a given. But I think quite often people struggle to try things because they're scared of failure and they don't want to, because it's uncomfortable, isn't it, to fail. But that's really when we learn as as human beings. We don't really learn. When we do things well, we don't see them. But when we don't do things well and we get some feedback or a poor performance, I think that's when people really sit and think about what they need to do differently. And so is that the role of the coach? I think that's the, the coaching environment is to create this, I guess this environment that you're trying to improve, you're trying to, get to the next level. What we talk about, like you never really get there. It's not somewhere you actually achieve. It's a constant. Once you accept as a constant moving target and you don't try and get there, you accept the fact that it's, your uncomfortable environment becomes more comfortable because you accepted the fact that you don't really ever get to where you're going you're constantly improving and it's just motivation which is your limiting factor primarily around that so coaching it comes in all sorts of shapes and sizes And the role of the coach can be different at different times going back to planning there's many different types of plan your coach needs to have from long-term short-term medium-term plans you know, there's session plans, there's the big picture plans, there's strategy. And I think, but, you know, the role of the coach is a very complex and challenging role and more challenging, I think, in modern times, because I think the dynamic, I think the way that uh, younger people now don't really want to be told what to do, and that's good. And there's a lot more information available. So I think there's gone are the days of coaches sort of telling people do this and get on with it. Sometimes that happens, but I think there's much more of a conversation. There's much more complex now because I think there's more information, but that makes, again, that makes the role of the coach even more important because you've got to filter through the noise and you've got to focus in on the key components.
1: You talked a minute ago about even coaches needing coaches. Could you talk a little bit about how you use coaches and the type of things you talk to them about?
2: I think everyone needs a coach, not just a coaching environment, which is one where you work collaboratively, you seek feedback. If you've got a coach, I think you're more open to improvement. If you go ask for how was that meeting today? I ran a meeting and uh, how was my agenda? You know, how did I chair the meeting? And getting feedback. So if you're the one asking for feedback, it's I think you're much more open to maybe going, okay, that's interesting. Whereas you turn that around and if a coach isn't the one saying, oh, by the way, I need to have a word with you. There's a few things I've got to say to you. That's like a conflict situation. So I think everyone needs a coach. I think that like a coaching culture is one where the person trying to improve or doing whatever they're doing is is the one driving the development. And then you're looking for people around you to get feedback in perspective. I think that applies, to, I guess, any environment that you're in. And do we do that perfectly? No, but it's something which we try to do. And I think it's actually, this is a good conversation because I think we started this off at Cycling Australia, if you know, a few years ago about the coaching environment. And I think, and I need to lead it. So if I start asking for feedback as the boss, and give people opportunity to comment and critique it and support. It's always nice to get a bit of positive feedback, but you know everyone likes to give. I think it sets the tone and sets the culture. So I think coaching's got to come from the top. I think leaders need to be open and willing to take on feedback from, I guess, the most the people that are on the, the ground floor or in the trenches, I suppose, in terms of and being humble enough to, to take that feedback on. So I think I need to keep doing that, be open to it.
1: I'd like to go back, if we could, to your time with Team Sky. I mean, you were working with Sir David Bra- Brailsford when he pioneered this philosophy of marginal gains, and it was a philosophy Team Sky used to win the Tour de France seven times. Could you explain a little bit of this philosophy to us?
2: Well, it was back in British Cycling days. To be honest, I was only at Team Sky for a few years. I was at British Cycling for twelve. So I think Dave see things and is very good at taking what's fairly simple and communicating it well. And I think what he observed and he talked about Peter Keane, That's where I got a lot of my. Peter was a mentor and I I took a lot of my early coaching information from him. It's really, again, I think Dave just noticed the attention to detail and he could see the interaction of multiple people, multiple strategies, and he could see how they compounded together to get a, a bigger gain. And I think at the heart of marginal gain, it's about, you know, it was the accumulation of these tiny gains we were measuring things like the aerodynamics and the physical and the psychological. There was a lot of different components. And if you improve those things, a number of things around an athlete, around a performance, then it's not such a big ask. Whereas quite often people try and go from step one to step 10 and the goal's too big. So by setting yourself smaller, more achievable goals and just chipping away, it's much more doable. So the marginal gains was about, it's more of a, a psychological kind of summary of what we were doing about trying to improve about to see holistically around the performance and kind on of in a number of areas which becomes more manageable than saying oh, actually we've got to climb this mountain and keep looking at the top and people think they can't get there so it's about setting your horizons I think at an improvement level and whereas improvement's quite boring but marginal gain sounds quite sexy and I think that's why Dave is improvement and people in business go we've been doing this for years it's not new so the language I think and the messaging around that really caught people's attention and it's pretty clever. Talking about psychological improvement, you have
1: a big focus on this, especially in your new role that you've brought into the Australian Cycling Organization. You brought in Ruth Anderson from British Cycling to ensure yeah. a mental performance was optimized. Can you explain her role and the difference that you hope she makes within the team? Well, just a bit of
2: background on Ruth, she's clinically trained. She worked in the Australian system. She was the head of AIS psychology and then has worked in other sports as well. And then worked for about four years in the British system. So she's Australian. I think just through my experiences of again back at British cycling and, and as a coach, I think just I think a lot of the conversations you have as a coach around people's thoughts and feelings and behaviours, which then drive their actions. And then I think as a coach, quite often you kind of a very poor. Amateur psychologist. So, I think the role of the psych within a team like ours is twofold it's to support the athletes directly, but also support the coaches and upskill and educate the coaches because they're the ones that are having the majority of the conversations with the athletes. And the third thing is, we've had a, a process for a few years now about what's our performance behaviors and trying to understand what are the, those observable actions that we can take which are aligned to our objectives of winning. So, that's really what Ruth's role is it's, um, athletes, coaches, and our broad behaviors. You just talked about those behaviours. Are you able to share some of those? Look, they're quite basic and it's a bit of a, and I think with this type of work, it's not something that you really solve start and stop so we started with like the athletes trying to have these conversations and they could be quite simple things which are observable within the training environment and one's you know like one's like giving 100% like making sure you finish if you've got a session to do that you give 100% and you can you can actually observe that whereas you're quite often organizations about values values are good they've got a role but you can't necessarily see them the things that you value so we'd rather sort of turn them into more behavioral so we've got another session coming up a month or so to to go back to ours but it's about supporting each other it's about Challenge is about accepting there's a challenging environment, I think. So, which just reminds people of if you've not been challenged or you've not challenged like someone for a while, you can observe that behavior. Some are team based, some are individual based. I'm sure the list will grow, but it's more about having conversations about what are the standards and what are the, the expected behaviors. And I think quite often people. In high-performance environments, it's not a happy family environment. It's not a family environment. It's really, really supportive, but they quite often have high levels of, of challenge as well. So it's getting the balance between a supportive environment, but also one which has got a lot of check and challenge as well.
0: Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've
1: always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. So if a coach was trying to improve the culture, which is a very broad word, to encompass values and behaviours and expectations, what advice would you give them? What would you tell
2: them are the first things they should do? Well, I think you've got to start really simply and you've got to prioritise and you've got to do the ones which are manageable. And I think you have to build it over time. And I think the other thing, so once you've set what those standards are, it could be we start training on time. You might, you know, for example... You know, we always do a debrief, for example. It could be things like that. I think what you can't do with these things is you set a culture and then you don't do it. And that, that undermines trust. So I think you've got to start small, set things which are realistic and then build on them as opposed to sort of starting with, like I said, like the, you know, the gold standard and then having a, a really, really big mountain to climb. You talked a minute ago about different personalities
1: within the team and needing to be aware of those personalities. I'm interested to know how you've managed to influence negative behaviours within the context of a team.
2: Yeah, look, it's challenging because everybody's got a, a different perspective and I think you've got to give people a chance to be heard. And if anything, I think with the Aussies, I mean, working with Aussies has been, I've really, really loved it. I've actually tried to encourage people to be not negative, but be, but be more challenging I think this I've commented quite often that they're really nice people and really respect their mates and their teammates, which is really, really important. So if anything, I've tried to ask them to turn the dial up on the on the other side. And I can't really think in terms of like negative behaviours. I think if there are negative behaviours, which they come in all sorts of shapes and sizes you know could be on the other side of aggressive could be passive aggressive for example but i think you just got to call it out you've got to have honest conversations with people i don't think you can walk past low standards because if you do walk past low standards then you're basically accepting them so you've got to have conversations with people about their behavior and their attitude on a regular basis so i've never been a big fan for the annual appraisal seems a very corporate kind of you know the annual 360 and the you've got lots of short uh, conversations i think like an annual appraisal might want setting goals and setting objectives but if you're not speak to people on a regular basis. Don't leave it to an annual appraisal. Everything should be covered on a, a more of a, a micro level. I've also heard you talk about doubt and a
1: sense of doubt being essential for any athlete, but doubt can also hold you back from elite performance. So I'm interested to know if there's any particular tips you have on dealing with self-doubt
2: or at least harnessing it for a better performance and better energy. I think getting yourself into that optimal mental state, there's, a lot that there's a skills to develop, I think the cornerstone to that is around your self-awareness and really understanding yourself. So I think that's where you start. And then you start to learn about, I guess, the what about expression, I guess, the mechanics and the processes of why we think the way we think and how we can, I guess, what's optimum thinking. And again, those types of conversations are best out for somebody else. And then coming up with a plan, I think, would be the, the three sort of components to that. I think the doubt is always... It worries when people say, I believe, a lot of what we do, it's, you know, we're trying to predict the future, and no one knows what the future is. So it's our best guess. A plan is really your, your best educated guess. And then as you go along, you need to get some data and information that you're tracking in the right direction. So it does worry me when people think, oh, yeah, I really believe what we're doing. It really scares me because they're not going to think hard enough about, well, actually, are we on track? And I think that's the balance. So it's, it's just a balance between in like a phased way of getting on with the plan, then stopping and taking a breather, assessing, reevaluating, scrumming down and go, then going again. So I don't think you should be daily doubt yourself, but frequently you've got to stop and reevaluate. So I think again, with all these things, it's, you can doubt too much, of course, you can believe too much and you've got to try to find the sweet spot And that. I think the fun thing with working, I guess, in any organisation, I guess, in any team, it's, we all see the world in quite a different way. And and again, the complexity of our perspectives and, and perceptions of, of our environment is, um, is quite different. You know, that's why winning in life, in sport, isn't an easy thing to do, because that's a, the goalposts are constantly shifting. So that's what I think is key. I think going back to that you know, self-awareness of really understanding yourself and understanding how you think is a real cornerstone. And You need people, expertise to help you learn about yourself.
1: In preparing for today, I loved reading about your coaching journey and the people you've interacted along the way, but also listening to you. You seem to be very self-aware, like always looking to get feedback. It comes across even in the interviews where you ask the people interviewing you questions. But I'm interested, what advice do you wish you'd had when you were starting out on your journey that you now know? I think
2: it's easy to, I reckon I could do better on the feedback, to be honest. I think that's one thing. It's very easy to get into a groove. So I think it's it's easy to say, maybe harder to do. What would I do differently going back? I think, I guess the thing would be probably to have a bit more patience and you can't achieve everything maybe as quickly as you would like to do. I think there's a lot of coaching, which I could probably do a lot better than I did back as a coach. Because, I mean, I started coaching really without much, apart from some mentorship, but we, we didn't really have any coach education or development or training like most other professions have, you know, thrown in the deep and You learn on the jobs. So I think in an ideal world, it would be nice to really learn about coaching, learn more generally around what the demands of a coaching role, uh, a high-force coach is, which is it's really, really complex. I think being really prepared for that, would have been really helpful, but I wouldn't have changed necessarily the experiences, even though it's pretty tough to get through in the deep end. It was a great experience and a great opportunity at the time.
1: You've had some great mentors, but I'm interested to know, are
2: there any other books or or resources that you found particularly useful as a coach? I listen to a lot of podcasts now, and I think that's the great thing with mobile phones. I guess one of the good things with mobile phones that you know a lot of the I'm not a massive reader. I don't think I can sit still enough that length of time. I've really got to work hard at reading books. But I think I quite like Marcus Chabay's Finding Mastery. Really listen to a lot of that. I tend to listen to a lot of Harvard business reviews or some of the HBR podcasts around sort of business and entrepreneurial I think it's a lot of synergy between I guess the entrepreneur and their problem solving sort of calculated risk taking requires you know what's required in an entrepreneur as there is to coaching as as well so I sort of listen to quite a few sort of business orientated people who've yeah failed a lot (laughs) in their lives and they're willing to share the things that they've learned and uh, ability to pick themselves up again and sort of try again so i really enjoy things outside of sport to be honest more so than. And read auto, you reading know, Alex Ferguson's autobiography, for example, I probably, that's probably not the bit of, that I would be drawn towards.
1: Is there any particular story or anecdote that you've found interesting just recently?
2: Well, no, I take note. I've been listening to 13 Minutes from the Moon. I've actually gone through it twice because I think what was... I think if you were to break all that down, and that's on the BBC at the moment, I think the vision of being the first nation to get a man on the moon... You know, not because it was easy, because it was hard to do. I really connect with that. And that's kind of what sport's about. It's We don't try and win gold medals because they're easy. We try and win because they're bloody hard to do. Um, and why would you try and set yourself easy things to do? So listen to that. I think that's a really good podcast. And even like the live commentary from the 13 minutes from when they start to descend to the moon, there's a, a section on there, which is just the live feed and the communication. And then the role clarity, the way the chain of command, the way that the sense checks with everybody... So there's like, he's getting feedback from all the different systems and he's making decisions on the fly in something which no one's ever done before. So that's like 50 years ago. It's totally amazing, the moon landing. So that kind of stuff I think is really inspirational. And I always pick out, I sort of listen for learnings and you think, they did that so long ago. It's almost like we're a bit scared now to try to do things like that. That's pretty inspiring and that's well recommended if you've not listened to that. I think there's a general feeling
1: that a lot of coaches aren't as innovative as they were previously. And what
2: do you think stops more coaches from being innovative? Science, in a word. I think when, go back 30 years, coaching was, information was less freely available. You sort of went to books and, and maybe dug around and, well, 30 years ago, was there was still quite a lot of information, of course. I'm not talking the, the dark ages here, but I don't think information was quite as freely available. So you had to take hunches and you had to kind of learn Probably in a, quite a, a small environment. And now as sports has got more sophisticated, the teams are bigger, the, there's more data. And I think it's got really complicated in what's a really complex world. And I think what you can't do in a complexity is you can't solve it by equation. Complexity is one where you, you literally have to sense, measure, assess really it's a constant plan do review because we live, we're working with people and i think we're trying to apply an overly scientific complicated solvable problem in a complex environment you can't do that and i think that's what coaches are good at when that we don't have all the answers and someone's got to make a decision and i think we're knowing that the people can't make decisions unless they've got all the answers and we don't have all the answers so if you want to rely on evidence all the time what well, good luck because we're already going over here without the evidence because we've got to take our best guess because we're living in this complex world. So working in complexity, that's where the, that's what the best coaches do. They synthesize information, they summarize, they get trends and directions and then discover and they evaluate and they go again. And they're, they don't be ahead of people because they're good at pattern recognition and pulling information together like that. And I think science is, I think, slow that up because trying to measure everything and get an answer before we move to the next a level. And I don't think that's not really the best way to do it in, like in our context. If you're making a machine, that is the right way to do it. You know, machines are complicated, not complex, and therefore you can systemize them and process it and you've it all evidence-based and you've benchmarks, benchmarks, but you can't do that with people.
1: Simon, so, mean, I've seen some footage of you with the team on race day and you're reasonably calm. And I'm wondering if there are any routines or systems that you use to sort of keep calm before, during the game?
2: When I used to coach, it was a long time ago now, I think I used get really, really stressed. And I think so I, had, I had two people. One would be Chris Boardman, who was a real mentor when I was coaching in the national team in Dave, I suppose. And also I should mention, you know, Steve Peters, you know, the psychiatrist, who was the team psychiatrist. And I think, I think all you can do on race day is be a negative impact as a coach, like your job's done. You know, team talks are overrated. No one really listens to you. If you've got to do a big team talk or go through your race strategy... You haven't done your prep, right? So I've learned that the best thing you can do is smile and be calm because then you're a bit more relaxed when things do happen left field things you've probably got a bit more cognitive space to make the right decision so I think I've only learned through making mistakes in terms of being super anxious and worrying and and basically and people give me feedback and say like Jonesy you look like someone's going to die 15 minutes before a final of a team pursuit or something so it's only through the feedback and people having your best interest at heart and I think I've got one of those faces that look a bit grumpy as well so I have to actually work it smiling just the way I was born so I can't really blame my parents for that one But yeah, so I think I have to think about it. But ultimately, racing on race day, great. That's the day you get to test yourself. Yeah, the best influence you can have on people around you is being calm and smiling. I don't think I probably do it all the time, but I certainly do try to do it. So on that odd occasion you caught me, I was obviously doing a reasonable job. Just one last question, if we can, Simon, and it's about legacy. And I'd like to know,
1: what's the legacy you want to leave as a coach? And in particular, in your present role as
2: head of cycling Australia? I've heard this quite a bit. I think think legacy is for ego. I'm just doing my job. Having these highfalutin, I'm not saving lives. I'm not president or a politician or uh, probably not my favourite people. No, I'm not someone who's leading the nation. I'm not a teacher in a school. I'm not a nurse in a hospital. We're just working in sport. Super privileged to be working in sports that we love, having a great time and hopefully treating people with a lot of respect, challenging support, having some fun along the way. I'm not too sure legacy is is up my street, to be honest. I think it's, it's very ego orientating and what I've left behind. It doesn't really sit that well with me, to be really honest. I'm just doing my job and trying to enjoy the, I guess, most of the time.
1: Simon Jones, thank you very much for your time today. It's been a wonderful conversation. Uh, We appreciate it. Have a good day, guys.
3: Hi, everyone, it's Jim here. You've been listening to our discussion with Simon Jones. The key highlights for me were how he differentiates between the plan and planning, and why this distinction is important as it allows you to change and adapt as required His belief that athletes inherently have their own answers, and coaching is about a partnership through which you co-create plans that allow them to tap into their own energy. And his view that we often try to apply an overly scientific and complicated problem-solving technique to human problems. And how the best coaches are able to synthesize information, summarize, find patterns, and adjust the plan. I hope you enjoyed this as much as Paul and I did. And just before we go, if you have any feedback, then please let us know. Just like the wonderful Lisa Alexander, who is also one of the great coaches we have interviewed for the podcast, who said, so many of those discussions are applicable to not just sport, but are all about communication, relationships, and professionalism. And Anthony Cochran from Australia, who kept it short and simple with, well done, great podcast. Lisa, Anthony, thank you. It's the interaction with people like you from all around the world who listen, give us great energy. All the details on how to connect with us and other people who are interested in the leadership insights from great sports coaches are in the show notes.